The only possibility for freedom from suffering is right now. The only possibility for enlightenment is in this moment. The only place where we live is now. Right here, right now. This is your life. Mindfulness Outreach Initiative is a nonprofit insight meditation organization located in Omaha, Nebraska. We provide meditation instruction based on ethics, compassion, and wisdom, as well as social outreach programs based on transformation and healing. To join the MOI community or to practice generosity, please visit our website at mindfulnessoutreachinitiative.org. Welcome, everyone. Tonight, we're just going to have kind of a potpourri. Uh, This is sprung from having been asked or talked, uh, asked several questions over the last couple months by different people and some questions in the past that I felt maybe I could elaborate on. So I'm going to start with the most recent. So there's no particular order here other than most recent to least recent. And the most recent was just in the last few days. And someone had asked me about working with past difficulties and kind of how to deal with events that happened in the past or worry about the future and that that sort of general topic. And especially in the past, there's sort of this attitude, even within the meditation community, of get over it. You hear a lot, let it go, let it go. And letting it go is not such an easy thing, and most of us realize that. And so it can be a little difficult. And I I think the first thing to realize is that the past and the future are not actualities. The future hasn't happened yet, so it can be any number of things. And the past has already happened, so we can't really change it. And in fact, the past kind of changes on its own in our minds because every time we recall the past, the memory changes a little bit. The other thing to realize is that past events and memories are useful tools. And Anne spoke uh, last week in her talk about reflection and contemplation and Reflection and contemplation can be very useful in terms of reflecting upon past happenings, past events, and seeing wisely how things can be dealt with, worked with now in a perhaps more fruitful way, in a less harmful way, in a a way that brings about more peace and ease. The question that I sometimes ask myself is, is there wisdom to be gained here? In other words, what can I learn from this? Especially if I've made a mistake, whether it's a small problem or or a very large problem, whether it caused a little bit of harm or great harm, what can I learn? What would be a wise course of action in the future were this situation to present itself again? I think that bringing compassion for oneself and others into that reflection can be very, very helpful. So that we realize that we're all human. And until we are all fully enlightened, our haunts 
we're all going to make these kinds of mistakes and we're all going to cause harm, even if it's unintentional. And so we just do our best. We try to decrease or prevent harm. We can see impermanence and change. And we just practice inclining the mind to a wise course, to the wholesome qualities, paramis, things like generosity, compassion, loving kindness, tranquility, et cetera, et cetera. And in a similar way, the future can be thought of in about the in, in kind of the same vein. In other words, to notice that the mind goes to planning and in trying to work things out. And certainly we can see probable courses of action and things that may happen or things that are less likely to happen, but we can't determine what will happen. And of course, anything can happen at any time and sometimes does. So we just do our best to consider, to contemplate the future and contemplate what a wise course of action might be. And keeping in mind that only the present is real. It's where we actually live. We can only affect these things in the present moment. The only possibility for a wise course of action is right now. So we bring mindfulness to bear. We make mindfulness predominant. And we see, what can I do now? What is the wise course of action now? What is happening now? What is being known now? Noticing the feeling tone, noticing the, the different contacts of the senses and how that feeling tone, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, has, as Biko Analio calls it, a gentle push to it, uh, maybe a push towards something or a push away from something. And just noticing the play of that in the mind and keeping that openness and that receptivity allows us to respond, perhaps, in a more wise way. The only possibility for freedom from suffering is right now. The only possibility for enlightenment is in this moment. The only place where we live is now. Right here, right now. This is your life. Just remember that when we're dealing with mistakes we've made, harm we've caused, unskillful situations in the past, to be kind to ourselves and others. To maybe try to find a little ease and a little bit of peace in the present moment with it. See it for what it is. And then... If a similar situation presents itself, reflect upon it and see if there's a wise course of action, a more wholesome course of action, more skillful course of action that can be taken. So the next question I was asked recently, or it was actually more part of a discussion than a question. I was speaking with a Dharma friend and we were talking about meditation and the path and different aspects of this practice. And they happened to mention that they weren't doing so well. And the, the context kind of came around to, well, maybe this isn't working so well. There was some confusion 
as to what the purpose of this particular path is. And so I thought I'd talk a little bit about that because it's very clear from the suttas and from what the Buddha has said that the purpose of this path is to come to the end of dukkha, to come to the cessation of dukkha. And dukkha, as we all know, is translated often as suffering or unsatisfactoriness. And as we were talking, I thought maybe a good word, a good translation for dukkha, and maybe I read this somewhere and just don't remember, is discontent. That feeling of not being content. Things aren't quite right somehow. I think that it's important to recognize that while there are other benefits to this path in its totality and to various aspects of the path, for instance, the benefit of ethical behavior is certainly a benefit to others because it benefits others in that it, one, does not cause them harm and can bring happiness to other people if we behave in an ethical manner. And it also is a benefit to us in that it allows the mind to settle, to be at ease. The word that's used in the suttas is blamelessness. We are blameless. We, we can't be held accountable for unskillful acts if we don't act unskillfully. seems to go without saying, but that can lead to a very good feeling. Meditation, of course, has been shown scientifically to reduce stress, physically and mentally, and have many, many different benefits other than the cessation of, of suffering, and so on and so forth. And these, these benefits, while they are important and are useful, are in some ways beneficial side effects of the path and not the main goal. A couple of questions that one can ask periodically is, what do I want from my practice? Where would I like to go with this? Once again, wise reflection can lead to some interesting answers. And that can allow us to place some emphasis on different aspects of the practice. For instance, if one is looking for more peace and ease and calm in life, one can work with concentration to find more ease and peace and calm. It's just important to realize that all of these other benefits are conditioned upon various situations. And as those conditions change, the benefits may change. They may come and go. And so that transient nature needs to be recognized. Of course, the transient nature of everything, the principle of anicca, impermanence, is central to finding the cessation of suffering, central to the cessation of clinging and craving, which leads to the end of desire and suffering. When that occurs, even if it's just for a brief period of time, all the other benefits fall into place. Things arise naturally. The mind naturally becomes more peaceful, more free, more expansive, more kind, more loving, compassionate. 
all these things come as a result of the entire path as well. So if we concentrate on the basics, if we work with the principles that the Buddha taught, the beneficial side effects will occur also. So the next thing that came up recently in conversation with another Dharma friend, this particular friend has been for a very, very long time having what sounded like after conversation, sloth and torpor, one of the five hindrances, be present and even predominant in their life in a way that is has interfered with their life and, and really caused them some worry and concern. And so we talked a little bit about some of the remedies for sloth and torpor, but most of the remedies that one sees in the sutras deal with meditation in particular. In other words, when we're sitting or standing in meditation or particularly lying down, it's not uncommon to feel woozy and tired and sort of lazy or, or whatever you want to call it. And, but it's probably a little less frequent that we deal with this in our daily lives, a sort of lack of motivation, uh, not really depression, but really a, a difficulty just getting moving. And so I thought I'd talk a little bit about the five hindrances and what some of the remedies are, both traditionally and then some things that can maybe help that are not so traditional that I've tried in my own practice in my own daily life. And the five hindrances, as of course you'll all recall, are desire, particularly sensual desire, desire for worldly things, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt. And desire for sensual items, and keeping in mind there is healthy, wholesome, skillful desire as well, the desire to be free, the desire to not suffer or be discontented, wholesome desire. But the desire to find happiness through worldly things can be quite destructive. And so in the suttas, Remedies such as contemplating impermanence, the fact that uh, desiring, say, a particularly good meal or intoxication or other similar items or, or possession, these things are all fleeting. And in order to make sense of happiness through them, we have to keep pursuing them and keep replaying them. And of course, each time we do, the input, uh, the stimulation has to be greater to arrive at the same sense of happiness or satisfaction that we had previously. So if we contemplate that aspect and how painful that can be and the impermanent nature of worldly things, it can help relieve us of that sense of desire, can show us that that desire isn't skillful. And in fact, when I use the word contemplate here, I'm being somewhat 
true to the to the translations in the sutras, but I think a better word might be experience. We want to experience impermanence through our practice by being mindful, aware, present, and seeing the changing nature of things, experiencing the changing nature of things within the body, around us, through the senses, through the mind. And another remedy is to contemplate or to experience the undesirable aspects of whatever is being desired. In other words, if we're desiring intoxicants, experiencing, noticing the feeling of what it's like after the intoxicant wears off. If we're desiring material gain, wealth, what's it like to be wealthy and then have to guard that and protect that? And, you know, once you have all these things or this stuff or this money, then you have to keep it from getting away. And it requires greater and greater energy to do so. And what is that like? And what is the stress like? And we can both contemplate it, reflect upon it, and we can also experience it in our day-to-day lives. What's it like when we overeat and feel the after effects? What's it like if we cause harm through our actions of desire? You know, have an affair. How did that go? These things are all ways of working with desire. Ill will, the traditional remedy is metta, loving kindness, wishing others well, all other beings. Not just the ones we like, not just the ones we can tolerate, but even the ones we have a lot of difficulty with, whether it's in person, day-to-day, or figureheads, or political figures, or whomever. Noticing when we get angry, when we are irritated or upset, and wishing that being well. And the being can even be, my dog got into the trash and threw it all over the kitchen floor, and now I have to clean it up, and I'm really pissed off, and oh, wow. It's not, you know, it's a dog, being a dog. That's what they do. Love the dog. Wish the dog well, that its suffering might end, that it might find what it wants in the trash. Who knows? I don't know. (laughs) So metta for ill will, loving kindness, compassion. Sloth and torpor can be a difficult one. If we are... Talking about meditation, there was a whole list of things that the Buddha said would help with sloth and torpor, everything from breathing faster to changing posture to getting up and moving around to pulling on your earlobes. All of these things can help sort of get us moving again, arouse some energy. In my own practice, and particularly in off the cushion, there are two things that have really helped as a remedy to sloth and torpor. And they are contemplating my own mortality, that this life could end at any moment for this being. And that brings a sense of urgency to whatever is happening in the present moment. Oh, I better be mindful. Do I really want to go out this way? 
do I really want to go out dull and listless and bored and whatever? Or would I, would I rather end and have that last moment or those last moments, if it's possible, be moments of mindfulness, perhaps moments of concentration or, or experience that is conducive to freedom, to peace. And the other thing, and we'll come back to this as a remedy later for one of the others, is investigation for me, looking into things, developing an attitude of curiosity really seems to help with sloth and torpor. In other words, if that particular state has arisen, looking into it, oh, what are the conditions here that are allowing this to arise? And if I can't see the conditions, just a simple question, what's going on here? What's happening here? Oh, it's sloth and torpor. And this can be during meditation or even not. You know, I'm just, I just don't want to do anything. I just want to sit around or, or lay around or whatever. Now, it might be that once maybe a little mindfulness comes in and a little bit of investigation arises, maybe the answer is, oh, I need to sleep. And that's not uncommon. I take a little nap or I go to sleep if I need to. Or maybe it's just there's something I'm avoiding. There's something I don't want to do or face or experience. Sometimes under sloth and torpor, there can be a lot of other things. There can be fear and anxiety, worry. Taking a little time to investigate, be a little bit curious about the condition, sometimes in and of itself allows it to dissipate. And at other times leads to other things that aren't being faced or aren't being seen or experienced. And sloth and torpor is just a smokescreen or a cover for that, a way of, of cloudying, muddying the waters so that we don't see clearly. Restlessness and worry. If we're meditating and the mind just won't settle, oftentimes taking a calming object of meditation, a very simple object of meditation. That's why we use the breath a lot of the time, especially as householders, because typically as householders, our minds are tend to be more agitated. There's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot we have to deal with. And we find ourselves being somewhat frenetic and talked last week also about slowing down. And so taking a simple object of meditation helps us to slow down to just be here now, as they say. If we're not meditating, we can do the same thing. We can just say, oh, just this moment. Just right here. Just right now. Just this body. Just this breath. Just this moment. Just that sound. Whatever it is. Something simple. Easy. And just allowing things to kind of settle down. Breath is really useful in that regard. And there are many other practices that use the breath for that very purpose. So I would highly recommend it as one of the ways of 
calming the restless or worried mind. It's important to point out that when restlessness and worry, sometimes also remorse, whatever it might be, restlessness and worry are usually about the future or the past. And you might notice that when you try to dispel restlessness and worry or remedy it by trying to work it out or figure it out, it usually doesn't work out very well. It usually ends up in endless rumination and kind of goes back to that question about how to deal with past events and future events and things like that. And that ruminating generally does not serve us well. It usually doesn't take very long to know either what went wrong in the past or what went right and what would be a more wholesome course of action, a more skillful course of action, or what we want to cultivate to continue a skillful course of action. Or in the future, when we're worried about the future, concerned about it, what the most obvious, probably the best situation we can uh, come to is. It's often under a minute. It doesn't take very long. And anything after that point is not only unnecessary, but can actually be detrimental, can be harmful. So that's the time to just say, okay, I've done what I can with this situation in terms of working it out, thinking about it. And let me just come to now. Let me just come back to the present and come to something simple, something easy. And then the last one is doubt, which can also be the hardest. And typically in the context of the five hindrances, this is doubt in the Buddha, doubt in the path, doubt in the practice. In other words, it's directly related to this path. But even doubt in general, doubt in a wise course of action, doubt in whether one has the ability, doubt in confusion, cloudiness. And once again, investigation can be helpful here. All of these things require mindfulness. So I'm sort of assuming that we all understand that bringing mindfulness to the fore and making mindfulness predominant is the first step in any of these remedies. But once that has happened, then just briefly looking into oh, well, there's, this practice isn't working. What, what has led to that conclusion? Just briefly. And once again, when I say briefly, I'm talking a few seconds, 10 seconds, five seconds, 15 seconds at the very most, at the very most. It doesn't take much. Because usually, if there is going to be an answer, it arrives fairly quickly. Sometimes there is no answer. And just staying open and receptive and maintaining that sense of curiosity and investigation. What's going on here? What are the conditions here? What's happening here? What is being known now? What is always true? What is always so? And that's why when you hear us talk as teachers about this path and about this practice, 
you're going to hear the same things over and over and over again, maybe said in different ways, maybe, maybe different terminology. But that's because it's really quite simple, because there are very few things that are universally so. Most things are not. Most things are conditioned. And when we come to what is always true for you, maybe, maybe the truth for you is things change. Great. Be with that. Maybe that's all you need. Maybe what's true for you is metta. Loving kindness is true for you. And it's not about figuring it out. It's what you experience as so, moment by moment by moment. When you are mindful, when you are present, what is true? What is so for you? Well, I'm going to touch on a question that actually came up, I think, two, three, maybe four months ago. A couple of people asked about different traditions and how practice that, that I tend to be most rooted in, and, and many of us are the Theravadan tradition or the early Buddhist tradition, whatever you want to call it. I think probably I practice mostly American, European version of the Theravadan tradition, whatever that is. Things have changed quite a bit in the last few decades, and there's a lot that continues to change. But there are other, of course, traditions, the Zen and East Asian traditions and the Northern traditions that a lot of people are interested in, in this Sangha, and of course, all over. We've talked a little bit about the differences and comparisons and questions about that. And, and the first thing I'd like to make very clear is that I don't know that much about the other traditions. I've just never really deeply studied them or practiced them. I've read a little bit. I've maybe experimented a little bit with them. So please keep that in mind. But that said, what I find when I do read about hear talks by and and play with other traditions is it's more a difference of emphasis than anything else for me that the similarities strike me much more than the differences do and that in some traditions emptiness is emphasized in other traditions and other lineages the idea of non-duality and unity is emphasized. In some traditions, there are lots of different aspects of meditation and practice, and it tends to be very proscribed. In other traditions, it's much looser, much more basic, much simpler, much less prescribed. What comes to mind there is Zen, where, where things are left really quite open, and, and teachers don't tell you much traditionally, uh, at least not in my experience. So all of those are, are different aspects in the way things are emphasized, but they all come back to the central teachings, the Four Noble Truths, the Noble Eightfold Path, the Three Characteristics of Existence, the, the Three Poisons. All of these are things you've heard about. Whether you practice Vajrayana uh, practice or Zen practice or Chan practice or whatever. And I think that really, uh, Joseph Goldstein wrote a, a really good book on this subject, uh, at least in part, called One Dharma. And I would recommend reading it. It's, uh, it's a really good look into that, that you don't really have to necessarily 
pick and choose in the sense that all of these lineages, in essence, are working toward, are moving toward the same thing. They're all sort of on the same path. They're just on different sides of the road, if you will. The question that he deals with most centrally in the book has to do with, does one work toward one's own enlightenment and freedom or the enlightenment of all beings? And his answer is you do both. There's no reason not to. Why wouldn't you do both? It's just a matter of emphasis. I think it's important because we can get caught up in who's right and who's wrong and the details and that sort of thing. And and we can get into a not very healthy place regarding some of these things. And I, I think that for me, what's worked best is notice the experience of practicing in a certain way and see if that leads to more calm, more peace, more freedom, more joy, more love, more kindness, more compassion. And if it leads to those wholesome and healthy qualities, then one is cultivating the ground in a way to move toward Nibbana, move toward the final goal. The short answer is do what works for you. And to some degree, it means you might pick and choose from from different traditions. I would highly recommend that when you find what works for you and you find a guide or a teacher, someone who is more experienced that works in that way, go there. But don't, don't be too rigid and don't be too afraid to find what works for you. As long as you're honest, it'll work out. So the last discussion, the last discussion I had with someone, (laughs) and this is a tough one. We may not finish this one tonight, folks. What is Nibbana? Can I explain Nibbana to them? And I thought, oh boy, (laughs) I'm in trouble now. First of all, the word Nibbana, the Pali word or the Sanskrit word Nirvana, The root is from to extinguish, as in putting out a fire, to extinguish a fire. And there are a lot of answers to that question, depending on who you ask and in what tradition. Some will answer that it's not a place, state, or destination. Others will answer that it is definitely a state, because if it weren't, if it didn't exist, then there would be no goal. Uh, In the suttas, it's referred to as the unconditioned, the truth, the deathless, the other shore, the unmanifest, the sublime, freedom, refuge, the final goal, the unmade, extinguishment, cessation, etc., etc., etc. The deathless element. The Buddha does refer to Nibbana as a Dhamma, that is unconditioned, with no arising, passing away, or changing. So that means that it it sort of is a thing and isn't. And it gets to be really confusing. The long and the short of it is that I'm not sure one can explain Nibbana to someone else. I think it's something that probably has to be experienced. You know, the Buddha was asked, does it exist or not? or both, 
or neither. And the Buddha said no to all of those. It's just indescribable. One can't cognize Nibbana the way that one can look at a glass or a cup. One can hold up, and I don't know if you can see it in my hand, this teacup here that's coming in and out of view, and say, this is a teacup. You can't do that with Nibbana. It's not graspable in that way, so it's very difficult to explain. However, there are manifestations as a result of one coming to the end of suffering. It manifests as the cessation of ignorance, craving, and clinging. People who are fully enlightened, as described, no longer cling to anything, no longer crave anything. The Buddha, as you know, probably, Buddha means the awakened one, the one who woke up, woke up to reality. It sort of exists the way that a fire exists. When the conditions are right, there's fire. And when the conditions are, are not right, then the fire goes away. The fire ceases. It disappears. The fire doesn't go anywhere. I'll read uh, a section here of a sutta. This is from uh, the Majjhima Nikaya, which are the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. And the Buddha is speaking with a monk, a bhikkhu, whose name is Vachagota. But Master Gotama, the monk whose mind is thus released, where does he reappear? Meaning someone who is an arahant. The Buddha says, reappear, vacha does not apply. It's not applicable. In that case, Master Gotama, he does not reappear. Does not reappear, vacha does not apply. Both does and does not reappear, doesn't apply. Neither reappears or does not reappear, doesn't apply. How is it, Master Gotama, when Master Gotama is asked if the monk reappears, does not reappear, both does and does not reappear, neither does nor does not reappear, he says, meaning the Buddha says, does not apply, is not applicable in each case. At this point, Master Gotama, I am befuddled. At this point, confused, the modicum of clarity coming to me from your earlier conversation is now obscured. Buddha says, of course you're befuddled, Vacha. Of course you're confused. Deep Vacha is this phenomenon, hard to see, hard to realize, tranquil, refined, beyond the scope of conjecture. Subtle, to be experienced by the wise, for those with other views, other practices, other satisfactions, other aims, other teachers, it is difficult to know. That being the case, I will now put some questions to you. Answer as you see fit. What do you think, Vacha? If a fire were burning in front of you, would you know that this fire is burning in front of me? Vacha says yes. And suppose someone were to ask you, Vacha, this fire burning in front of you, dependent on what is it burning? Thus asked, how would you reply? I would reply, this fire is burning in front of me, dependent on grass and timber as its sustenance, in other words, fuel. 
If the fire burning in front of you were to go out, would you know that this fire burning in front of me has gone out? Bacha says, yes. Suppose someone were to ask you, this fire that has gone out in front of you, in which direction has it gone? East, west, north, or south? Thus asked, how would you reply? That does not apply, Master Gotama. Any fire burn, burning dependent on a sustenance of grass and timber being unnourished from having consumed that sustenance and not being offered any other is classified simply as out, and in parenthesis here, unbound, which is another translation of the word. Extinguished would be another. Even so, Vacha, any physical form by which one describing the Tathagata would describe him that the Tathagata has abandoned, its root destroyed, made like a palmyra or palm stump, deprived of the conditions of development not destined for future arriving, freed from the classification of form, Vacha, the Buddha is deep, boundless, hard to fathom, like the sea, reappears, does not apply, does not reappear, does not apply. Both does and does not reappear, does not apply. Neither reappears nor does not reappear, doesn't apply. Didn't go in any direction. Any feeling, any perception, any mental fabrication, any consciousness by which one describes the Tathagata would describe him that the Tathagata has abandoned, its root destroyed, made like a palm stump, deprived of conditions of development, not destined for future arising, freed from the classification of consciousness. Vacha, the Tathagata is deep, boundless, hard to fathom, like the sea. And you can substitute the word Nibbana for Buddha or Tathagata there. If we are fortunate, some of us, perhaps all of us, will experience at least a brief moment of Nibbana. We will know what that is like. And the manifestation of that will begin to appear in our lives. The first instance of that is typically called stream entry, and it removes all doubt uh, and certain other things. And so there are manifestations by which we can know the appearance, the arising, the finding of the destination, if you will, of Nibbana by what manifests in our lives. Lastly, on this particular topic, the Buddha warned several times in the sutras about against too much philosophical speculation and instead admonished us, admonished us to put the teaching into practice, to experience the result. And I'll quote a former teacher of mine, in closing, if you experience it, it is the truth. The same thing believed is a lie. So that's all I have for tonight. We have a couple minutes left. If anybody has any questions or comments they would like to share, thank you all so much for coming tonight, for being here. Uh, I hope this has been of benefit to you. And uh, I look forward to uh, seeing you again sometime in the future. Thank you for listening. We know your time is valuable, so we are grateful you choose to spend it with the MOI community.
This podcast is supported by listeners like you. To make an offering, please visit us at mindfulnessoutreachinitiative.org. And tune in each week for more Dharma talks, reflections, and teachings centered in the insight meditation tradition.